This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The biggest battle we will ever have to face is the battle between you and you. It's the battle of taking your mind to that limit and then breaking through. On the Mindful Experiment podcast, we will share concepts, universal laws, and interviewing individuals who have done just that, who have gone through the dark times and through those moments allowed their light to shine bright. I'm your host, Dr. Vic Manzo, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and taking this journey with me as we discover different avenues to break through those limits, expand your reality, and evolve into the person you desire to be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Well, everyone, and welcome to another episode here on The Mindful Experiment. This is your host, Dr. Vic, and I am just excited to have you here. Excited to you be listening to this episode, maybe multiple episodes, following the podcast, being a subscriber. I just want to take a moment to thank you for that because it really creates more inspiration for me to continue doing what I'm doing here from the podcast side to continue to bring great content, find great individuals to share their wisdom, their nuggets about life and concepts that relate to the mindful experiment overall. So appreciate you. In this episode, we have Dr. Glenn Livingston on, and Glenn is, shares something that I believe we all face in some way, shape, or form in our life. We've all done some possible binge eating or probably ate something that we probably shouldn't have eaten, 
And Glenn shares his personal story and goes way into depth about it in this episode about sharing about his journey of what led him to where he is today and how it has transformed his life. And now he has created um, a book and a concept about Never Binge Again to where it is the number one uh, book on Amazon and so much more that we can dive into. Just to tell you a little bit about Glendo. He has a PhD. He's a veteran psychologist and was a longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which he serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. Glenn has sold over $30 million of marketing consulting services over the course of his career. You may have seen him or his company in the previous work, theories, and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Indian Star-Ledger, the New York Daily News, American Demographics, or any of the major outlets that you've seen. You may have heard him on ABC, WGN, or CBS Radio, or UPN-TV. Delusion by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and over food obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most importantly, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight and much more lighthearted relationship with food. It's a really great episode here. He shares a ton in this episode to truly help us all, in my opinion, that we all face in some way, shape, or form at times when it comes to binge eating or overeating or just sometimes stress eating. Anywho, without no more further ado, I present to you Dr. Glenn Livingston. Dr. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thank you. You can call me Glenn. Oh, Glenn it is. Um, I'm excited to have you on. There's a lot of things that you are uh, experienced with uh, and an expert on and with, with eating and all these different things that I know you and I can go for hours uh, discussing. So I'm really excited to dive into this topic. Me too. We're looking forward to all week. How, can, how did you end up getting into um, where you are today when it comes to binge eating and stress eating and all that, what, what piqued your interest? Was it a personal story or was it something you, uh, you just saw as an issue in, in America or in life in general? Uh, how'd that get, how'd that direct you towards that? <laughs> um, well, have you ever gone to the store and maybe they were, out of Pop-Tarts or spaghetti or pizza or something like that. Have you ever been in that situation? Never. I can tell you right now. hope you could pick up on my sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you did, it was probably me. I'm probably (laughs) the guy that emptied out their inventory because I'm I'm not just a binge eater. I'm not just a psychologist, but I've also struggled with binge eating for a good part of my life until um, about nine years ago when I discovered a really odd solution. And it started when I was about 17, and I'm 6'4", I'm reasonably muscular, so I figured out that if I worked out for two and a half or three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And that was no problem when I was 17 years old, because I could spend all day working out, and my metabolism was pretty high, and um, I could eat as much as I wanted to and then sleep it off, right? I, I didn't have all these responsibilities. But when I became a doctor, I was a young doctor, and I started seeing patients, and I was commuting two hours away to graduate school. Um, I'm sorry. Well, this was after graduate school, but I, I was commuting an awful lot. I, I just didn't have the time to work out. I didn't have the time to do that. And 
I found that the foods had a life of their own and I couldn't stop eating. Um, and I'd be sitting with suicidal patients or people right after they'd had discovered an affair in the marriage. And it was very risky situations. And if anybody knows anything about being a psychologist, and I, I come from a family of um, 17 psychotherapists. It's my mom, my dad, my sister, my uncles, my aunts. It's kind of crazy. Oh, wow. Um, but so it was really very important to me to be a good psychologist. That's been the most important thing to me most of my life. Uh, you, it's not an intellectual endeavor. I mean, it is. You, you piece things together, but really when it comes down to it, what gets people to change is you lending them your soul. You, you've got to be very much emotionally present with them. And I, I wasn't. I mean, I, I never lost anybody. I worked with a lot of suicidal people. I never lost anyone. And um, I think only two out of about 250 couples that I saw ever got divorced. But Oh, wow. That's awesome. I, I suppose. But I felt like I could have done a much better job. And, and gotcha. you know, those are the outside measures that you judge by. But I feel like I could have done a much better job if I was not sitting and thinking about when can I get to the deli to dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the you know, tray into my mouth. There you and so having come from a family of psychologists, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so I, I went a very psychological route trying to solve it. I made the assumption that it's not what I'm eating, it's what's eating me. I must have a hole in my heart. And if I could fill it, then I wouldn't need to fill it with food. And so I went to see psychologists and psychiatrists and the best eating disorder specialists and spent years in Overeaters Anonymous and had a very, very soulful journey, uh, which I don't regret. I think it's a big part of who I am today. But what would happen would be I'd learn a lot of things about myself. I'd learn a lot of psychological skills. I'd get better for a little while, and then I'd get a lot worse. And so I was slowly getting fatter in the long run. And the doctors were starting to yell at me about my triglycerides, which were over 1,000 at one point. They were telling me I was probably going to have a heart attack in my early 30s. And, um, you know, health has always been important to me. And, and I was a health professional, right? I was kind of like a leader, even though you're talking about people's psychology. If you're sitting down with them and they see a big pot belly, it's like, how much can they, how much can they really trust that you're taking good care of yourself and that you're someone to listen to? And um, really, really bothered me. Really, really bothered me. But this went on for, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say almost three decades. It was really not until my mid-40s that I started to figure it out. And when I finally started to figure it out, it was because I switched paradigms. I stopped trying to love myself thin. And I started to think of myself more like an alpha wolf dealing with a challenger for leadership. Hmm. And I, I said to myself, and I'll tell you why. There were three events that occurred that made me believe this. But I want to get to the end. The result is that I, I realized that these urges, cravings, which were mostly for chocolate for me to start with, and then I would fill it up with pizza and Pop-Tarts and everything you could imagine. But these urges were biological in nature, which meant they were coming from an organ. And the more I researched it, the more I realized that it had to do with the midbrain or, or the um, most a very primitive part of our neuroanatomy, 
which for all intents and purposes is responsible for survival. But it's on an eat, meat, or kill level or a feast and famine level. It's not responsible for the sense of uh, humanity or, you know, love and nurturance of tribe members and family members or significant other or contribution to society or the pursuit of long-term goals. It's really a very, very primitive eat, mate, or kill, feast or famine, um, fight or flight type of, of mentality. And it's coming from a, an organ in my lower brain. And I said to myself, you know, there are other organs that generate really powerful biological urges. My bladder, for example. Um, you know, I could be sitting in the middle of a business meeting and I could really, really have to pee, but I don't just drop trow and go right there. I wait until the meeting's over or I excuse myself politely and I express that urge in a particular way at a particular time, which is acceptable to me and everybody else. Or my testicles, right? I could be walking down the street and there's a really attractive woman coming down the street. I don't just run up and kiss her. Um, I'm actually a little bit shy in person, so I probably don't even talk to her. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, but you know what I mean? I, it's, it's expressed in a particular way at a particular time. And I'm very comfortable with that. It's not like I have to be frightened of those urges. Um, same with driving down the street. Someone cuts me off in traffic. I want to kill them, right? But I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't get out of my car or point a gun at them or anything like that. I don't. I don't have a gun for anybody who's curious. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I process the rage in a socially acceptable way. I might scream in my car if nobody else is there, but I don't hurt the guy. I don't do anything untoward. I. I'm very comfortable that that's always going to be the case. I've got very powerful urges, which I only act on in a particular way in a particular time. Why is food any different? So I realized I had to be more like an alpha wolf dealing with a challenger for leadership. And when an alpha wolf deals with a challenger for leadership in the pack, it doesn't go, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug, right? <laughs> it, it, it's more like, you know, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? Yeah. That's snarls and it growls and... Okay, so the three things that led me to the conclusion were a big study that I did with over 40,000 people on the relationship between the foods that they craved and the um, stressful parts of their life, which, which parts of their lives were most stressful. That was one of them. Another one was having done a lot of advertising consulting for big food. Um, I, I was married to a marketer and I never commuted. I didn't have kids. She, she traveled for business all the time. So I worked at home and I had a lot of time to develop a second career. And I wound up doing a lot of consulting for big food and big pharma and companies that I kind of wish I never consulted for now, but <laughs> I did, I did it. And, um, there you and what, what goes on in big food, for example, is this engineering of, hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins and salt. And it's engineered to hit your bliss point without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result of that is a kind of hijacking of your survival drive. Um, It's a short circuiting of the pleasure system, right? We're, we're not really meant to have 
pleasure in these concentrated doses. Um, th there were no chips and and pretzels and pizza and you know chocolate bars on the savanna when we evolved. No, I'm not saying that people can't enjoy them. I, I think that you know it's we fought wars for our freedom, and if people want to do that, they have the right to. But what I am saying is that it is kind of like a drug, and it's a, it's a concentration of um, concentration of pleasure that evolution didn't prepare us for. And when you look at what happens when in animal studies, when the pleasure system is short-circuited, and the clearest example of that is when they do it with electrodes, when they put electrodes in the in the animal's pleasure center directly in the brain, and then they wire that that electrode to a lever that the animal compress themselves. Do you want to guess what happens when they do that? They probably like to hit it a lot. Thousands of times per day to the exclusion <laughs> of everything else. <laughs> um, a nursing mother will abandon her pups to hit that lever a thousand times a day, thousands of times a day. A starving rat will abandon food to the point that they could starve to death, hit that lever thousands of times a day. They'll crawl over painful electrical grids. Their survival drive has been hijacked to pursue this artificial source of pleasure instead. And I don't think that anybody's putting electrodes in our brain. I'm not paranoid. I don't think that I'm being kidnapped and I'm not searching for wires in my head all the time. <laughs> but I, I think you can make an argument that there are chemical electrodes. I think you can make an argument when you can walk out of a McDonald's in most cities and see a Burger King across the street. Um, or, or, or I don't mean to pick on those two. There are all sorts of fast food establishments everywhere. I think that it's no wonder that everyone's looking for the love at the bottom of a bag or a box or container. Yep. I, I think. And if you look at the manifestation of this, most people know that if you want to lose weight and keep it off, you're going to have to eat more fruits and vegetables. And most people say, I don't really like fruit and vegetables anymore. Um, or, they ne or that they never did. And part of the reason for that is a phenomenon called, uh, called down-regulation of the nervous system, mm -hmm. which in plain English means if you eat a chocolate bar every day, an apple is not going to taste as sweet anymore. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you keep it up, you'll get to the point that the chocolate bar doesn't even taste really pleasurable anymore. You just feel like you need it to feel normal because you are, your brain has stopped responding at the same level the you know dopaminergic and other other neurotransmitter systems that create the experience of pleasure require a progressively larger stimulus to fire and the result is something we might call anhedonia or a feeling of lack of pleasure again a constant pursuit of more and more stimulation um, another way to understand it would be when i was in graduate school i had to sleep under the subway for a year and at first i thought how am i ever going to get any rest but three weeks later, I could hardly hear the subway. It's just your, your brain habituates to these, to these stimuli. Uh, the good news is it goes in the other direction, too, if you stop doing it. So if you stop having a chocolate bar every day um, in less time than you think, an apple's going to taste a lot sweeter. It's not going to get you high in the same way that a chocolate bar will get you high because you won't get that artificial concentration and tremendous hit of pleasure. But you know, the longer you go without those types of things, the more you're going to be able to taste the subtle differences between different breeds of apple, for example. Um, you know, an Envy apple versus a Fuji apple versus a Gala apple. And you'll start to enjoy that. Um, so you're not going to be tortured forever. But, but anyway, so that was one thing that happened was I really saw what was going on in the big food industry.
with the overstimulation. Then I, I knew what was going on in big advertising also, where they were spending billions to make you think that you, you needed these things um, and that they were healthy. And so they kind of reinforced what was going on with the food itself. For example, I consulted for a major food bar manufacturer that told me um, their biggest profitable insight was taking the vitamins out of the bar, putting the money into the packaging instead. They made mm. it really colorful and diverse and, you know, in nature. I, by the way, if you, if you want to say something, please just speak over me. No, this is all great. Keep going. I love it. So, so in nature, we, are, we evolved to recognize a diversity of shiny colors as the availability of a diversity of nutrients. Mm -hmm. If you eat a really colorful salad, green lettuce and blueberries and red tomatoes and purple cabbage and, you know, yellow carrots, you're getting a diversity of micronutrients that nature evolved for you to respond to. Well, this company was faking you out. They're, they're making it look like, oh my God, there's a big salad in here, but really it's just a bunch of chemicals. And I don't mean to single the amount that's going on across the food industry, the way that things are advertised. Um, okay, so there's that. Then there's this study that I did where I asked 40,000 people what foods they struggled with and what stressed them out in life. And I found out that people who struggled with chocolate said they couldn't stop eating chocolate once they started. They tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. Hmm. And that, I mean, that was my thing, by the way. I, I always started my adventures with chocolate, and I was in a bad marriage, and I, I kind of was lonely and brokenhearted. Um, then people who struggled with salty, crunchy things, they tend to be stressed at work, which kind of makes sense if you think about the like, aggressive nature of the chewing and crunching. And the people who struggle with soft, starchy, chewy things like bread or bagels or pasta or pizza even, they, they tended to be stressed at home. And these weren't perfect correlations by any stretch of the imagination, but there was, a, there was a pattern there, and I thought it was really interesting. And before I was going to start using that, I figured, let me solve this for myself first. So I, I went to talk to my mom, who was also a therapist, and raised me. And I said, Mom, and I found this really interesting thing, and you know, both you and I are crazy about chocolate, and you know, I, I thought you might know because you raised me. It makes sense. I mean, I'm lonely and brokenhearted, but what happened in my upbringing? How did this happen? How did the pattern get set up? And she gets this horrible look in her face and the horrible sound in her voice. And she goes, I'm so sorry. And I go, mom, what? <laughs> and, and she goes, I'm so sorry. I really didn't mean to do that. And I said, mom, whatever it is, it was 40 years ago. I forgive you. Just tell me what happened. She says, well, you know, when you were about one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified. Um, we had, we were working on having a second kid and I had no viable way of making a living. And I couldn't imagine it was going to happen if he didn't come back from Vietnam. At the same time, I had just learned that your grandfather, my father um, got out of prison and he was guilty. He'd been guilty. He'd been doing these things and I'd idolized them my whole life, and my whole life really fell apart. So I was devastated and depressed. And mostly, I just sat and stared at the wall. And when you came and cried to me for food or love or comfort, I 
didn't have it in me all the time. Sometimes I did, but I didn't have it in me all the time to give you what you needed. So I put a little refrigerator on the floor and I filled it up with chocolate Bosco syrup. And you'd go out and you, I, you'd come running to me and I'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you'd go running over to the refrigerator and you'd take this bottle out of the refrigerator and you'd open the bottle and you'd suck on the lid and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And I thought to myself, oh my God, that's it. That's how the pattern got started. And if this were the movies at that point, mom and I would have a big cry and a big hug and we'd forgive each other and I'd never have trouble with chocolate again, right? Mm-hmm. Well, would you believe me if I told you that the problem got worse after that? Hmm. It did. And I mean, we, we had a hug and I, it was a very worthwhile conversation to have because I, I did get softer on myself. So it had a psychological impact on me. I, I understood what happened. I could forgive my mom. I could forgive myself. And I found that that voice of self-criticism and self-castigation you know, that horrible negative voice, it, it softened a lot after that. So it was a worthwhile conversation to have. But the problem itself got worse because there was this crazy voice of justification inside me. And it went something like this. Hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. Mm-hmm. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can find the love of our life and get out of this crappy marriage, you're going to have to go right on bitching. Yippee, let's go do it right now. Go get some chocolate. <laughs> so so it, it, it was this voice of justification that would use anything to convince me to, to have more. And that made me realize that, you know what? Maybe you don't have to solve all your emotional problems to stop overeating. Maybe it's okay if you have a hole in your heart. Maybe you don't have to eat anyway. Because if you think about it, think about an emotion like the fire, you can have a roaring fire inside a well-contained fireplace in the middle of your living room, and it becomes the center of hearth and home. People gather around it, and they tell stories, and they make connections, and it keeps the house warm. It's only if there are holes in the fireplace that you have a problem, because the fire can get out and do damage. And I recognize that in this analogy, that voice of justification was poking holes in the fireplace. And if I could disempower that voice of justification, if I could recognize when it was at work and disempower it, then I could leave the fire burning. And yes, you know, I'm a psychologist and I think all the exploration of what's actually causing the fire and what's the fire like right now itself, I think, I think that's really valuable and it's good work to do, but it's not necessary. And as a matter of fact, you can do a lot better work on your emotions if you stop overeating first, because you'll feel them more. You'll be more present. You'll have your wits about you. So those things taken together, another book I read called Rational Recovery, where a guy was talking in much the same way about um, a guy's name is Jack Trimpey. He was talking about, about drugs and alcohol, which are black and white addictions. And um, he'd written a book about it. And, 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 you know, I had to make a tremendous number of modifications for food because you can't quit food entirely. And it's also less of a moral issue than drugs and alcohol really are because, People that are really indulging with drugs and alcohol can get behind the wheel of a car and kill someone. And, you know, it's pretty rare that the police give someone a ticket for eating too many donuts. <laughs> um, I, otherwise, I, I'd be, otherwise, I would be living in, in four gray walls with my new husband, Bubba, by now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's um, hilarious. Yeah. 
So that's my story. And, and so here's the embarrassing part. This is the solution. I decided that in order to be the alpha wolf, I had to recognize this voice of justification. And in order to recognize it, I had to have very clear behaviors that were okay and not okay. Um, I need an operational definition of what healthy eating was. So I started with some very simple rules, like I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. It's very, very clear. You could follow me around all week and know whether I did that or not. And if I had a rule that said I will never have chocolate on a weekday, and I heard a voice in my head on a Wednesday that said, you know what, Glenn? You worked out hard enough. It's not going to make a difference. Go have some chocolate. Or, you know what, Glenn? You, you could just start tomorrow. Or chocolate comes from a cocoa bean, and that, <laughs> that grows on a plant, so it's really a vegetable. Um, that, I decided, was squeal. I decided that was pig squeal. I decided my reptilian brain was my pig. I told you this is an embarrassing thing, and I, I never intended to publish this. I really thought this was just for me personally. And the chocolate itself on a Wednesday would be pig slop. So when I heard that voice in my head that said, just start tomorrow, I'd say, wait a minute, I don't want that. My pig does. Chocolate is pig slop. I never eat pig slop, and I never let farm animals tell me what to do. (laughs) As ridiculous as that sounds, the combination of flipping the paradigm to be aggressive, um, an aggressive leader as opposed to a nurturing father, or nurturing my inner moody child back to health, when I flipped that paradigm and I started to cultivate a sense of um, distance between me and this internal organ, at the moment of impulse, I don't eat pig slop, I don't let farm animals tell me what to do, it would wake me up and give me those extra microseconds that I needed to make the right decision. And I can't see I was better right away. What it, you know, it took some time to get used to it. It took some time to integrate it and make some different types of rules and figure out all the different things the my pig was saying. What I can say though is that I immediately recognized that I was totally in control. That it was me making the decisions. I, I had free will. I might be making the wrong choice, but I absolutely had free will. And there was not this mysterious uh, chronic progressive disease going on inside me or some ununderstandable force or some, some irrepressible human impulse. These were strong cravings. They were not a manifestation of a disease, but they were a hijacking of my survival drive by industry for profit. I mean, every time that I ran to the you know, 7-Eleven to get some bags or boxes and containers or chocolate bars, um, I, there was some fat cat in a white suit and a mustache laughing all the way to the bank, right? Mm-hmm. But, so I, I realized that I got angry as opposed to feeling ashamed. And I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not eating pig slop. I'm not letting farm animals tell me what to do. And I felt hopeful. I, I, it's like I started up the mountain at that point, and it kept going. Every now and then I'd make a mistake, but it kept going. And, you know, I, I lost the weight. I think I was probably 280 at my top. I stopped weighing myself around 260. It's probably 280 at my top. Now I hover between, like, 200 and 215. Um, and, and my triglycerides came down, my, my psoriasis went away and my eczema went away. Um, you know, all, all this energy, I started to feel present in the world. I noticed that people were smiling at me and I wondered why they were smiling at me. And then I realized, I think they were smiling all the time. I was just so fogged in by a you know, mountain of pig slop that I, I didn't realize. And, um, I got better. I got better. I, 
I, I never meant to publish it. I really thought it was just for me. But as I was getting divorced in 2015, I was a minor partner in a publishing company, and the CEO wanted to wanted to publish a book to prove that we knew what we were doing with marketing so that we could attract better authors. And he asked me if I'd write a book. And I said, well, I kind of have this journal. I guess I could edit it into a book. So I took a month, and I very rudimentarily edited it into a book, and um, I gave it to him. And a week later, he comes back to me, and he says, don't answer Pig Slop, but I never read Pig Slop. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And he lost 86 pounds. So, I mean, not right away, but he did over the next year or two. And so we published it, and we both have a background in marketing, so we did all the right things, but it really took off on its own. And um, we've got 700,000 readers. It's often the number one book for weight loss on Amazon, the Kindle free side anyway. And um, now I go into a bookstore, and people don't recognize my name, but they recognize my face sometimes. And they come up to me, and they point at me, and they go, Pig guy, pig guy, pig guy, <laughs> which is not what you want to have happen on a first date, by the way. <laughs> I hear you on that one. That's awesome. What a story. What a story to, uh, you know, lead you down that journey and that path. And I think some of the most powerful ones are the personal ones. And um, uh, you definitely, I, I know you went through some struggles to, to get to that solution. It, it was a hard 30 years. I'll tell you that for sure. You know, do you think that sometimes when it comes to like pain or stress or things along those natures, do you think people avoid, try to avoid that pain? Because you were mentioning how if you pull away from the food, you'd be more present with what you're dealing with. But do you think sometimes people want to kind of avoid the pain and run away from it? And they use that as like uh, like a drug, a substance, an alcohol, whatever it may be. Yeah. So... <sighs> The nervous system has difficulty conducting the emotions when it's overloaded with digestive tasks. And as a result of that, um, excess food and food-like substances have an analgesic effect on the emotions. We don't feel our pain as much if we go and have some quote-unquote comfort food. That's not all that's going on. And see, our pig would like to take advantage of the fact that we need to eat for comfort by saying, oh, you know, we're, we're in so much pain and, and I'm, I'm, I'm so sad you can't leave me like this. And then you're back to wanting to nurture the pig again. What, it ignores the other half of what's going on. The other half of what's going on is that we're getting high with food. Cho- chocolate or... What, let's say having, you know, four bagels, right? It doesn't just stop your nervous system from conducting the emotions. There's a short-term high from the, you know, sugar rush, from the quick conversion of the, um, you know, bagels into sugar in your bloodstream. Followed by a corresponding crash, by the way, which is um, part of the physiological reason that people want to go back for more and feel like, you know, the, the first bite leads to, an all-day binge because they're actually trying to chase away the crash that they know that's coming. Um, physiologically, once you destabilize your blood, your blood sugar like that, you're going to be on a roller coaster. And the two ways to get off that roller coaster, one is to stop eating junk and you know, have some have a salad and you know, let your system renormalize and go through the crash that's inevitable. Or the other way is to have more sugar. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it's important that people recognize that they're not just eating for comfort. They're also eating to get high with food because most people don't want to think of themselves like a drug addict. No. And it, it, it makes it dystonic and it gives you more opportunity to make better choices. That's pretty good stuff there. Cause I mean, it's uh, the whole, even how about the dopamine effects where you have, you know, you eat something that you gives you that comfort. It's that whole training the brain with the dop- dopamine response to get that quick res- relief of um, joy or happiness or just that uh, sensation of, of, oh, I can't think of a better term. We'll just go with the joy and happiness. <laughs> well, that's, that's definitely there. And what you want to do is train your brain to get more of that response from things that nature intended instead. So people don't believe me when I say this, but underneath your craving for chocolate is probably a craving for kale or chlorophyll. Um, I, when I, I, I heard, I kind of put this together from Jack Trampy, who said that, was talking about smoking and he said that when a smoker has an intense craving for a ciggy they have actually made a biological error their their the apparatus in their brain and their lungs thinks that smoke is oxygen thinks that the smoke is necessary for survival and to overcome that the smoker could go outside in the cool, I was talking about being in the mountains at the moment, I think, go outside in the cool mountain air and take three deep breaths and sigh them out. What are you doing there? Well, you're instructing your brain that it's made a biological error and what you really need is oxygen, right? Okay, let me give you what you really need. It's the same with food. It's just that you have to do more experimentation to figure out what it is that you personally really need. So for me and for a lot of people that I've worked with, we just insert the fact that I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a licensed dietitian. I'm, you know, I'm a psychologist. And even, even that is questionable in this environment because I'm saying some things that might not be in accord with the best practices of my profession. So I offer it as education and coaching rather than treatment. Um, But that said, you're, um, there's, some, there's probably some authentic physiological need behind the craving. And I did all kinds of experimentation, and I finally figured out that when I crave chocolate, if I drank a big glass of a banana smoothie with kale in it, kale juice or sometimes the whole, the whole beef, that the craving went away. I did not experience the same immediate heightened pleasure that I felt from eating the chocolate because that doesn't really exist in nature. But I did feel very comfortable and content and satisfied. It's, it's like the difference between contentment and mania. Um, contentment psychologically is a very stable, consistent and persistent state. If you cultivate it, whereas mania is fleeting and unstable and always leads to a crash. And it's, it's, so it's the same physiologically when you're searching for what's underneath the cravings for the food that's troubling you, you're probably not going to find the same level of pleasure, but you will find contentment that 
makes the craving go away and you're perfectly comfortable living like that indefinitely. And then you find more excitement and more pleasure in the other things in life. Your, your system will adjust to, you know, enjoy the sunset more and um, like the smell of your spouse's neck and love hugging your kids. And you'll, you'll get those dopaminergic hits from the areas that nature intended. And it's a little different for everyone, it seems. So I, I think I'm addressing your point. Am I, am I answering the question you asked? Yes, you are. And so is it what, um, for those who suffer with, with, with binge eating, overeating, stressing and all that, is it more of just then for them, for the, for, for the people who are listening, um, is, is there hope that it's just like a reprogram of the brain, creating behavioral changes to slowly work yourself out of it? That's what I think. And that's what, that's what I've seen with thousands of people that I've worked with. Um, I, I suggest, okay, so a lot of the reason that people are stuck is because they don't recognize that they're constantly vacillating between feast and fem. And most binge, binge eaters are not just addicted to binging. They're probably good dieters also. The problem with that, you know, with gaining a bunch of weight and then trying to take it off in a hurry, is that you're signaling your body that you're in an environment where nutrition and calories are often very scarce. And it would, if you think about it, it makes sense that if you live in an environment where nutrition and calories are scarce, that the moment that they're available, the moment the brain senses they're available, that it would say to hoard them. And this is why, by the way, feeling too full for many people probably acts as a binge trigger. A lot of people have to be careful not to feel too full because it seems to open up the lid and then they're just shoveling as much as they can. So the, the solution is to figure out how to slowly, steadily, reliably, and consistently feed your body what it needs at maybe a small caloric deficit so you can lose weight over time, maybe a pound or two a week. Um, I, I don't believe in fasting for, for binge eaters. I do believe in the medical benefits of fasting, but I don't believe in doing it for binge eaters until they're really well over the, the binging cycle. Um, and, and so what I tell people to do is to start slow. Let's find one rule that would make a significant, significant difference in your life, make you feel a lot better physically. Maybe it's not going to make you lose weight and that's okay for the first, unless your doctor says it's urgent for the first couple of weeks. All we want to do is teach ourselves to recognize the pig squeal, learn how to disempower it and learn how to make healthier choices instead. And that rule could be something to do with your single most difficult food trigger or behavior. So a lot of people will say, well, I'll never eat standing up again, or I won't eat in front of the TV again. Some people will say, I'll only have chocolate in social events, or um, I'll never have more than two, two desserts per week. Um, you know, they say, Whatever it is, I'll always put my fork, always put my fork down between bites. I never go back for seconds. Um, I always have five servings of fruit and vegetables every day. I always write a hypothetical meal plan the night before before I go to bed. I say hypothetical because it might change, but at least it forces you to spot the trouble spots. Make make one rule, and then declare yourself one hundred percent confident that you can follow it forever. And when you do that, your pig is going to say all sorts of things. And it's okay that you have both sets of those thoughts in your head 
You just want to start to cultivate the separation of your human identity from the self-destructive thoughts. And then write down the negative thoughts that say that you can't do it. Um, you've never done it before, so you can't do it now. Um, you, sure, you're determined now, but you're probably going to forget. Uh, I can't get you now, but I'll get you later. <laughs> what, what, write down whatever your inner pig is saying. You can call it something besides a pig if you prefer, as long as it's not a cute pet. Remember that. <laughs> and and wa- watch how the game is played. P- play with structuring your mind in this way and learn to ignore what the pig says. Once you've done that for a couple of weeks, it's a totally different ballgame. Then you're no longer feeling hopeless and powerless and desperate. And you're saying, you know what? I, I can actually control this thing. So now what's next? How do I, how do I rein things in a little bit? And um, that, that's what I recommend for people who feel desperate. And there's, there's definitely hope. I, I do not believe that overeating is a disease. That not, unless you've had a serious brain injury that, you know, injured the parts of your hypothalamus that control, you know, satiety and, and all that. Unless, unless that's the case that I, I can't imagine why you can't do this. I really can't. And I like the approach you take too with it. It's just it's a very simplistic approach. Start with one and work from there and build build on from that. Yeah. And that's really a good way to um, slowly retrain that brain to start to build those new neural, you know, the neuroplasticity, the, the nerve memory to allow it to make those shifts and change little at a time to break away from it. Yes, exactly. I love it. How then do you, and maybe this is the same thing. Let me know if this is or isn't, but how do you then reprogram yourself to think like a permanently thin person? Well, well, it is the same thing, but there's some other elements of it. Gotcha. One of them has to do with collecting evidence of success. And this sounds a little crazy to most people, but it's one of the strongest keys. See, if let's say you, you, say you're never going to have chocolate again and then you have a binge you have a triplet of chocolate um let's say you had five cupcakes well there are two ways to look at that you could look at it at it with the lens of failure and say oh my god i'm a pathetic dieter i'm always going to be a fat person might as well just accept being a happy fat person at that i'm disgusting let's go get some more um or you could say you know what I only had five cupcakes this time instead of 15. I wonder why. <laughs> now, they, one of them is using the lens of success to collect evidence of success no matter what happened. The other one is using the lens of failure to collect evidence of failure. Which one do you think your pig wants to use and which one do you think you want to use? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are all kinds of manifestations of that. If you, so if you collect evidence of success you'll eventually build a success identity and become a successful person at this. If you collect evidence of failure, you'll build a failure identity and you'll become more and more of a failure. The, um, the other manifestations of it are things like the questions that you ask yourself. So most clients, when I first see them, they're asking themselves, why can't I stop eating? How, can, how come I can't stop eating? And they don't recognize that that goes along with the failure complex because the questions we ask ourselves program our brains to collect particular evidence. So when I say, why can't I stop eating? What I'm really telling my brain is, go find me evidence that I can't stop eating. If I say, how can I stop eating? Then I'm 
telling my brain to go find the evidence that shows me how to stop eating. You see, it's like, it's like a subtle difference, but it makes all the difference. So th- there are things like that. There are things like understanding that the self-castigation castigation that occurs after a binge is really binge-motivated in and of itself. When the pig says, you're pathetic, you're never going to get this, it's really saying, just give up and go get more now. It wants you to feel too weak to resist the next binge. So the, that's all part of the evidence of failure paradigm. The role of guilt and shame is a little different than most people think it is. You don't want to get overly involved with guilt and shame. It's very important that you learn to forgive yourself with dignity. As a matter of fact, that's the hallmark of when people start to recover. It's they start to forgive themselves with dignity, collect evidence of success, and get up and aim at the target again. But at the same time, you don't want to eliminate any negative feelings. You don't want to eliminate any sense of guilt or shame because it's kind of like eliminating the pain of touching a hot stove. If mm. you accidentally touch a hot stove, you want to feel that pain for a second because otherwise you won't know where it is and you won't be able to make adjustments so you don't touch it again. But what you don't want to do is say, oh my God, I'm pathetic. I might as well just put my whole hand down on the stove. I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. Right? It, it's no. or, or like if you're shooting at a bullseye, you don't want to say, oh, I missed, so I might as well shoot the rest of the arrows into the audience. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, so there's a fine line. You, you want the pain for a second, but then you, and, and there are disorders in this world where kids are born without the ability to feel pain and they don't live very long because they don't know where the edges are. The, the, the idea is to, you know, commit with perfection. Um, if you're going to be shooting at a bullseye, then you want to see the arrow going into the bullseye before you let go of it. So you can purge your mind of all the doubt and insecurity about, well, gee, I didn't pull back hard enough or stand stand at the right level or maybe the air resistance I haven't accounted for enough. All of that uncertainty distracts your mind and drains your energy from accomplishing the goal. And you want to focus all the energy on the goal instead. So you commit with perfection and you declare yourself to have perfect intent. But when you make a mistake, you want to feel the pain for a second so you know that you did make a mistake. You analyze what went wrong, you make adjustments, and then you you uh, you forgive yourself with dignity. So commit with perfection, forgive yourself with dignity. I like that. You're you're not like repelling any of those emotions whatsoever. You're just like allowing it for the be there and and, and let it just prosper through and so forth. No, no, I'm trying to follow the natural paradigm in nature. You know, we we have pain for a reason. Um, but once that reason is served, we can let it go. Very true. Yeah, like even in, uh, from a chiropractic standpoint, we always look at things and say, you know, when someone has pain or discomfort, and it's a little more energy medicine more than anything too, is where it's all about uh, pain is just there to let you know that you're not being present. And the body's trying to get you back to being present. Mm, that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah, and so it's, it's, that's why I appreciate the, the, the emotions and allowing it to be there. Because a lot of times people be like, well, guilt is a low vibration or guilt's this or shame's that. And, you know, you have to work through it and look at other things. And it's just like, well, how about if we just sit in there for a moment and just let it prosper through and, 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 and just embrace it for the moment? So, except for, for example, if I have a little sciatica that's telling me that I've got an inappropriate movement pattern or something I need to pay attention to? It, it, it can be that. It could be a, a lot of other factors, too. That's the... That's the interesting thing about pain, though, too. 
um, it comes from, it's never one thing. It's a multitude of things. So like you being a psychologist in chiropractic, we say the biggest thing that causes most issues for people 80% of the time, give or take is mental, emotional uh, stimulation or stress. And that's what affects an individual's, uh, you know, it can affect them in so many different ways that it will start to change their biology. It'll start to change the way the muscles change. You know, as we're changing neurology, then it starts to change uh, how the muscles react, how composture is going to be and defense physiology and all these different things. That makes sense. So it's it, it's a very, very interesting, but no, I appreciate that concept the the, the concept of of just embracing those emotions, and I appreciate you uh, sharing that stuff with us. Sure thing. Um, anything else you'd like to add before we uh, get winding up here? I can't believe the time's already here. This is, uh, this has been fun. I would love to tell people where they can get a free copy of the book if that's okay. Of course, yes. How to get a hold of you, connect with you, all that stuff. It's really all through the website at neverbingeagain.com. If you go to neverbingeagain.com and you click on the big red button, you can sign up for the free reader bonuses, which includes a copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. But there are, among others, two very important things in that package. One is a copy of our food plan starter templates. Um, The book is diagnostic, meaning that you can use it for any dietary philosophy you want to work with. And so I created a set of starter templates, which are in and of themselves sets of rules for each dietary philosophy we could think of. So there's one for ketogenic, there's one for uh, macrobiotic, there's one for point counters, high carb, low carb, calorie counters, whatever you can imagine, we believe we covered it. We call them starter templates because we want you to be able to make adjustments. The last thing that's there that I want to tell you about today is a set of free recorded coaching sessions. The reason I did that is that I know that this is a really weird philosophy and theory. You must be thinking, why is there this psychologist on who's got a pig inside him and doesn't like pig slop? And um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it. It's a very, very, very odd philosophy in, in theory. But when you hear it implemented, you realize that it's First of all, it's self-esteem enhancing. Some people think you're going to wind up attacking yourself, but you actually want to feeling better about yourself. It's, it's life-giving. I want you to hear how people go from feeling desperate and powerless and confused and hopeless to hopeful and powerful and enthusiastic in just one session. Uh, it's all at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. Awesome. Well, Glenn, I appreciate having you on. I appreciate the work you're doing and the way you do it. It's uh, uh, really um, it's a game changer for a lot of people. And uh, I just appreciate you uh, taking time to be on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And, and have a good one and keep it up. Thank you for listening to the podcast. For past shows, please visit www.empoweryourreality.com. I hope this show inspired you and added to your life to help you on the journey to rediscover who you really are. To connect with us on Facebook, please visit www.facebook.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. Check us out on Twitter. The handle is Dr. Vic 21. Follow us on Instagram, www.instagram.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. If you were inspired by the podcast, Pay it forward by sharing it with someone who you know can benefit from it. Thank you again for listening to the Mindful Experiment podcast, sharing paths to help you rediscover 
your infinite potential. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing it with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And until next time, keep rocking and rolling.